0: Let's pray. Lord, first this morning we want to uh, ask that you will bless uh, the ministry of a local church or nearby church. Lord, we want to pray for Lake Point uh, Church in Rockwall. Lord, we thank you for the ministry that you have have, uh, cultivated and built and developed in through those folks. Lord, we thank you for their field. We thank you for the... um, for your name being renowned and enjoyed and savored and the gospel being savored in Rockwall through this ministry, Lord. I pray for Steve and his his marriage and his study, and Lord, I pray that his time with you in the Word is, is invading his um, time at home first, um, and that the gospel is being lived out and is on display in how he treats his wife and family. Lord, we pray that that uh, is then spilling over and gushing over onto a pulpit ministry and onto shepherding and then it's building a people that are captivated with our Jesus. Lord, we pray that you will guard us from ever having a spirit of competition with Lake Point or any other Christ-enjoying, Christ-savoring, gospel-professing church in this community or nearby, but that we can truly be each other's teammates, cheerleaders, and prayer warriors on behalf of each other. Lord, we pray that you will be glorified in the way that we do that with each other Lord also this morning as a kind of an extension of Lake Point ministry I want to pray for uh, David and Melanie Perda and pray for their journey to Russia and the next uh, our starting Thursday about 10 days or so in country Lord we just pray that Christ will be savored and enjoyed we pray that the gospel will be on display we pray that those who don't know you will come into fellowship with you through the shared gospel or to pray that you will give uh, david and melanie boldness and trust that we don't have to peddle it we don't have to uh, tailor it or modify it or soften it we just have, to, just have to speak it and communicate it in love and that your lost sheep will hear the shepherd's voice pray that they'll be encouraged in that knowledge that they'll look forward to uh, bringing a sweet word to a foreign land pray for their kids while they're gone, that you will keep them safe and guard them in the faith and in the truth. Lord, in these next few minutes, I pray for this people that we can be a people that will enjoy the truth being exposed. I pray that you'll just make me um, small and pour me out, that I'll be liquid and um, out of the way, that you will, any thoughts that I might have about what anybody thinks of me, that you will just murder those thoughts. And the truth will be on display and that we as a people will gather at a table and that we'll take in nourishment that changes us and that reorients us and that just makes us the salty, bright, aromatic people that you've called us to be. Lord, we thank you so much for these next few minutes that we have. and um, We turn them over to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 13. I, part of my prayer this morning is uh, <clears throat> really... I'll tell you, sometimes it helps me to get things out in the light. These last few weeks, we kind of have an interesting time in the life of Crosspoint where um, some folks have heard about Crosspoint or have been connected to friends of Crosspoint and kind of heard about what's going on and like, man, I want to come check you guys out. And, um, you know, there's breaking ground out here for a a worship center and things like that kind of create this buzz. And that's, man, that's nerve-wracking for me because it makes me feel like i got to dance, you know, and I'm not a good dancer, <laughs> you know, so I'm just going to get out in the light, you know, if you're disappointed this morning, man, just stick around for maybe a little while, maybe you won't be a few weeks from now or something, but I, we're just not here for the entertainment factor or the, um, the mode of communication, we're here for the substance of communication, what is actually being exposed, um, I share that too because I'm kind of preparing you these next couple weeks for a three-month sabbatical that I'll be taking starting uh, the last Sunday I'll be preaching is July 20th and you'll be hearing from the other elders and um I want to prepare you to be okay with sitting at someone else's table but eating the same nourishment taking in the same sort of food and not being focused on the messenger (laughs) we're so prone to that and um Sometimes I want to disappoint just to get you off that. Yes, yeah, it's so bad. These next few minutes, though, I think what I want to do is uh, I want us to go to John chapter 13. I'll give you kind of a bird's eye view of what we're doing. I'll go ahead and read our passage just to give some of you kind of a, some insight into where we've been over these last few weeks. Really, since about five years ago, we've been in the book of John, not exclusively. It's been kind of a springboard to a lot of different places. We've gone all over the Bible. Um, and what we've done is we move verse by verse, and then when he takes us on little tangents, we step away and we eat the nourishment that he's given us for that short period, maybe away from the book of John. But the last few months we've been in John chapter 13, and there's a little section in John chapter 13 that we haven't dined on thoroughly yet, and that's John chapter 13 beginning in verse 31. And I'll go ahead and read that and kind of give you a bird's eye view of what we're doing this week. This is in the final hours of Jesus' life up into the cross. He spent three years walking with these guys, the disciples. And now this little bitty microchurch has been purified. Judas has left the room and left the table. So now we have the church proper, a little microchurch here sitting at the table. And Jesus, in his final hours, is going to, man, there's just a lot of red letters for the rest of the book of John right up to the cross. Because it's like drinking from a truth fire hose. <laughs> You're going to get some truth here in these next few chapters. And right here, and he's introducing them. Now that Judas has left the room, to a new commandment. Listen to this. When he had gone out being Judas, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Speaking of the cross says, little children, yet a little while I'm with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I'm going, you cannot come. In this context, you can't come because you're DQ'd. You're not qualified to be nailed to a cross and bear the sins of the world because you're blemished. I, on the other hand, am unblemished. Not, not I, but Jesus. It says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another, it's a commandment, to love one another, and how just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, by this sort of radical, otherworldly love, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love, this sort of love, one for another. What we've done these last few weeks is we've kind of gone into what we've called the summer of love. I don't know how many more Sundays it's going to last, but uh, definitely this Sunday and, and likely the next. But what we've done is we've kind of examined this commandment. We recognize what it is. And in many ways, we've also put out what it isn't. The world has a definition of love. And then God has a definition of love. And this commandment to love is the word agape in Greek. It's this otherworldly sort of love that's not loving for some sort of self-serving benefit. But it's loving selflessly. And it's loving not based on the lovability of the loved. It's loving based on a cross. This fueling sort of love. It's an altogether different love. It's not something that comes natural. If you hear about this sort of love, if you've been here these last few weeks, you're going to say, I'm not made like that. I just couldn't do that. I'm like, well, no duh. Nobody is. It's an otherworldly love. It's a divine love. The other sorts of love that we've considered these last few weeks have been storge. Storge is the sort of love that a parent has for a child. You can see it really defined in a mom that loves her little boy even though he's a rascal. You ever see that picture a couple of years ago where the kid crawled up into the, the toy machine in Walmart? <laughs> Mommy loves him while he's in there. I don't know how he got in there, but you've seen the picture. He's in there with the little claw that comes down and grabs a stuffed animal. But she loves him. That's storegate. There's also Phileo. That's brotherly love. That's the kind of guys that are out, and this is a caricature against all motorcycle riders, which... I'm not against, I like motorcycles, but just imagine the guys that are out riding the Harleys together, and they're out, this is again the extreme caricature, robbing banks and beating people up. <laughs> <laughs> that's what people do on motorcycles, right? Not really. But they have brotherly love for each other. That comes natural. That's phileo. And then there's arrows. That's where erotic love comes from. And I think most of you that have warm blood running through you, you know that that's not really difficult to muster. Those sort of loves come natural. The sort of love that doesn't come natural is agape love. That's an otherworldly sort of love. So in many ways what we've been doing is we've been considering this commandment to agape one another just as I have agaped you. And in explaining that and exposing that and dining on that, we've looked also at what love isn't or this sort of love isn't. He's not speaking of eros. He's not speaking of phileo. He's not speaking of storge. He's speaking of agape, lovability or loving love not based on the lovability of the love. And last week, Scott took us on a little journey through the book of John. We're going to do much of the same thing this morning. Last week, Scott took us on a journey where we considered that he loved us with his schedule. Jesus says, love one another just as I have loved you. Then we ought to just hunker down and say, okay, well, let's consider what just as looks like. Let's be a student of this sort of love. Because if we're commanded to have that sort of love to one another... And we know that it's not something that's going to come natural. We've got to go to school. And the way we go to school is to go dine on the rest of the book of John and really the Gospels and really the whole Bible to get to know the love of God. But what Scott did last week, he took us on a journey where we saw Jesus loving with his schedule. First of all, he showed up and he took on flesh. And then he walked with them. And he engaged people even when he was weary. He engaged people even at weddings he engaged even the social outcasts, like a blind guy or a Samaritan woman. He demonstrated that his love, that he loved them with, with his schedule and with his time. Love wasn't on the schedule. Love was the schedule. Two very, very, very different things. Today we're going to consider that he loved them with the truth. I'll tell you right now, turn back to John chapter 2. I'll tell you as you turn in there. My legs are kind of quaking over this sermon. and trembling. It just seems like it's really straightforward. And like, hey, man, you're preaching on love. How challenging could that be? This is a pretty challenging sermon. Because it's going to fracture and break paradigms of what your view of Jesus is and also your paradigms of what you view love as. What we've been doing these last few weeks, and this week is going to be no different, we're going to put the world's definition, and maybe even our flesh definition of love out there, and we're going to contrast that with the commanded love in John chapter 13, agape love. Okay, let's start with John chapter 2. What we're going to do is, you know, Jesus is telling these disciples, he says, love one another just as I have loved you, just like Scott mentioned last week. They're going back and they're thinking, huh, how has he loved us? Let me recollect So in many ways, they're pulling out the photo album. Let me go back and look at some of the things that we've done together with our Jesus so we can learn how to love one another. And here's the first one, at least the first one that I'm going to. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. By this point, Jesus has at least called Philip and Nathaniel. He's likely called some of his other disciples. Brand new followers of this brand new teacher-preacher. Just imagine being one of the disciples. You're following this new Jesus. It's days, maybe weeks, maybe months into this ministry of following him, and he goes to Jerusalem for Passover. You're following him, not knowing what to expect one moment to the next. You know, he's teaching some, preaching some. And here in verse 13, it says, The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Apparently a pretty common practice. They're selling these critters for the commerce of worship, for sacrifice. You go buy your pigeon, and you go offer it for sacrifice. Right there, it's one-stop shopping. Right there, it's like Super Walmart. And he goes in there, and he walks in there, and what does he do? He makes a whip of cords. Okay, remember, you just started following this guy, this gentle Michael Bolton look-alike, <laughs> Peaceful, serene, teaching, preaching. And he makes a whip of cords, and he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And connecting to the disciples and what they saw and what they heard in the next verse, it says, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Okay, these brand new disciples, brand new followers of Christ, the first thing really weeks, maybe months out of the shoot, the beginning of the ministry, and they get a clear exposure to this Jesus, he ain't playing. This Jesus is not just going through the motions. This Jesus is zealous for something, and he's zealous for the purity of where God abides. Over the years, the tabernacle on the temple was the place, the fixture, the location, geographic location where the dwelling of God was with sinful man. A holy God dwelled with sinful man. And the way that was achieved is a bunch of stuff had to die. And that's what was going on at the tabernacle on the temple. Sacrifice, sacrifice, sacrifice. And what they're seeing here clearly is that his zeal for the house of God is now going to be the zeal. He's, he's, he's giving them a truth lesson. It's going to be the zeal for where God abides later in the church. That God is serious about the purity of where he lives. And what we're seeing here from Jesus right out the chute at the beginning of his ministry is that he was not afraid of making waves. This Jesus was not politically correct. This Jesus was not. And here's the word you're going to hear frequently this morning. Tolerant. This Jesus was not his love for them being the disciples included showing them the truth even with possibly a violent image he's showing them what really matters is it the commerce of worship or the worship of commerce (laughs) kind of the same thing or is it the purity of God's people his truth burst in with a living illustration And it burst in violently into darkness. Now turn to John chapter 6. The next little snapshot on the next page of the photo album. John chapter 6, verse 14 and 15. I'll show you a little bit of context before we consider these passages. Jesus has just fed the multitudes, fed 5,000 at least, 5,000 men. There were likely lots of other people there. He fed them with five barley loaves and two fish. Pretty amazing miracle unfolded right in front of them, right in front of the disciples. And it says in verse 14, it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. And then in verse 15, it says, Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Now, I wonder if the disciples were caught up in this they. Perceiving then that they were about to make him king. Just imagine if you're going to follow Jesus, you're going to leave everything, your boats, your tax collector booth, and you're going to go follow this Jesus. You're going to see some of the things that he's done. You're going to see these miracles and you can say, this is the one. He's going to be the king of the Jews. He's going to liberate us from this heavy hand of Rome. And here he feeds the multitudes, and now the crowds want to make him king. You can imagine the disciples getting caught up in that. Yeah. He's going to be king, and I'm going to be in his court. I can't help but wonder if they were thinking that. We don't know that for sure. But we know at least the crowds wanted to make him king. And despite their vote, despite their desire, despite their preference, he sent them away. And he even sent the disciples away. Hey, disciples. See that boat down there on the Sea of Galilee? I want you to go get in that boat. I want you to go to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. I'll meet you on the other side. I'm going to spend some time with my Father in prayer. I know what you want, crowd. I know what you want, disciples. But I'm not here to be what you want. I'm here to be what the world needs and what my Father commands. The truth is I'm not that kind of king. So he's driven by the truth. He's not driven by their preference. He's not driven by what the people wanted. I can tell you as a pastor, as a fellow elder, that should be an encouragement to the elders. As a shepherd of a family, that should be an encouragement to you. That if you're driven by what your kids and your wife, and some of you may have a difficult time with the father being the head of the household. That's another teaching. But if you have a difficult time with a father leading a family, and if fathers, you have a difficult time with with saying, this is the way it's going to be, family, I'm going to listen to your preferences, but I'm going to make a decision, then you've got to recognize that we've got to be driven not by what your family may want, but ultimately by what God wants. There will be, not there may be, there will be times where those come in conflict. I guarantee it. Should we be driven by what people prefer or by what God commands? It's got to be the latter. And that's what drove Jesus here. Turn to John chapter 7. Here's the next snapshot. John chapter 7. Beginning in verse 37, I'll give you a little bit of context. This is during the Feast of Booths. Over the course of the Feast of Booths, they would step off to the pool of Siloam, and they would have this big procession, and the priests would lead out in this thing, and the people would follow, and they had this big bowl, and they would gather up water from the pool of Siloam, and then they would march back to the temple, and everybody would follow them, and then they would gather up this water over the course of the week into this big bowl. And then on the final day of, the feast, on this, final day of this feast, it's called the Great Day, It says in verse 37, Jesus stood up and cried out. I cannot help but imagine that he cried out at this moment. Because here's what happens on the last day. Once they've gathered up all this water, they take this big bowl and they pour it out over the altar. You can imagine this moment of anticipation. Whoosh! Big bucket of water just being poured out all over the altar. Everybody splashed on the front row. And then they pray and they thank God for his provision. And it says, on the last day of the feast, on the great day. It seems like it would be like Jesus to stand up and do that at this moment. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Look down at verse 40. Look at what happened when he cast these words out. It says, when they heard these words, these words being the truth. Remember, he's loving them with the truth. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. And others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David? and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was. So there was a division among the people over him. See, here's the reality. And the next snapshot in this little photo album is that he loved them with the truth of being the living water, and the result was division. It wasn't kumbaya. The result of him exposing this truth about who he was made for division. Some people thought him crazy, and others thought him true. And you've got to appreciate that this division was prompted by the truth. The cried out, spoken truth. He loved them with the truth, and it resulted in division, not kumbaya. Turn to John chapter 8, the next snapshot. <clears throat> this is chapter, I've I've titled this chapter, my own little title is The Revival Gone Bad. And you may have heard this you may have heard me unfold this before, but unpack this before but let me kind of tell you the story Jesus is preaching you might see the little heading there before your uh, John chapter 8 verse 12 says I'm the light of the world that gives you some idea of what he's communicating he's just said I'm the living water and now he's saying I'm the light of the world he's teaching and preaching about who he is and it's a successful revival look at verse 30 it says he was saying these things many believed in him so just envision that. He's preached on who he is. He's preached on being the light of the world, and it says many believed in him. So they're passing out the decision cards just as fast as they could possibly pass them out. And those with the decision cards are filling the front row. They're all on the front row. They've all got those little bitty pencils that are never sharp enough, you know, that are really dull, and you can, what is that guy's name? I don't know. Lord knows. But they're filling out those cards on the front row. that has been a successful revival so long, or so far. But then Jesus keeps on speaking truth. This is what he says in the next verse. It says, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, to those who are sitting on the front row while they're filling out their cards with their dull little pencils. He says, okay guys, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Now, what you've got to appreciate as unfolds in the next few minutes is these guys put their little pencil down and they look up from their little card and they say, now, what did you say? Could you repeat that? Okay. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, we're offspring of Abraham. <laughs> I'm filling out my card right now for you, but <laughs> you, you should have. Stop talking a little bit ago because you started to make me mad. Because we're offspring of Abraham and we've never been enslaved to anyone. I'm awful forgetful about Egypt and Babylon. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And Jesus answered them Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. This is truth. He's loving them with the truth. Everyone who commits sin is a slave in fact. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you'll be free indeed. I know that you're offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. And they're like, Abraham? He goes on to say, no. Your father, in verse 44, says, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. You can imagine by this point that the little decision cards have kind of floated to the ground. They've dropped them because they're standing there, sitting there with their mouth ajar. Wait a second, I, can, I walk down the aisle. <laughs> I'm filling out the card. I believe in you, yet you keep talking and you talk about what true discipleship looks like. What we're seeing here unfold in this chapter is we're seeing him love them with a difficult truth about what it means to truly be a disciple. See, he spoke the truth about our desperate and hopeless slavery to sin that's true of every human being because we have all sinned and all fall short. No one's righteous. No, not one. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. This is our story. But these guys sitting on the front row would have none of it. Our daddies, Abraham, we're Jews. How dare you? But he spoke the truth to them about our desperate and hopeless slavery to sin, about what robust and true discipleship looks like. And belief as he portrays it is pretty doggone radical. It's pretty robust. Belief as he portrays it right here about abiding in the word, living in the word, dwelling in the word, that's belief with chest hair. That's serious belief. That's full on. When you abide in something, it means you live there. It doesn't mean you dabble there. It doesn't mean you go there when times are hard. It means this is your food. Some of you say, man, (laughs) I'm not much of a reader. It's hard for me to abide there. For the true disciple, that would be like us saying I'm not much of a breather. Because for the true disciple, this is our air. This is our food. This is our nourishment. And that's the truth that he's communicating right here. Abiding, dwelling, living in the word is how he characterizes true discipleship. Think about this row is full in the front. The revival's gone well so far, and he could have been very inclusive and encouraging with them and just nudged them toward true discipleship. Man, guys, I'm glad that you gave it up this morning. I'm glad that you filled out those cards this morning. It's all good. Just be sincere or at least look sincere. Just mean well and recollect my words when there's nothing on TV or when work is slow or when times are hard. But that's not what he says. He could have just kind of nudged them in that direction, but instead he loved them with the truth about what it really means to follow him. And what that is is that we recognize our slavery to our daddy and that we abide in him, that we cling to his word, that we feast on his word, that we live in his word, and that that's what true discipleship is. And if we are truly his, if we're a sheep, then that's wool to the true disciple. Jesus loved them with the truth. And I want to show you verse 59. You may have never seen this before. If you've ever read the progression in John chapter 8, this is why I say it's a revival gone bad because it just didn't end with a few people that were mad who dropped their little stubby pencil and dropped their card. It ended with them picking up rocks. In verse 59 it says, So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. This is all the same setting and all the same context that they ended this revival ended with these supposed believers picking up rocks to stone him. He loved them with the truth. And this truth was radical. His truth was challenging. I think Peter must have been listening. Peter later writes, "Like newborn babies, we are to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, that by it we may grow up to salvation." I am air. Ah. Peter was listening. Turn to John chapter 10. Give you a little bit of context there. In John chapter 10, Jesus is sharing his sweet teachings on the, the character of the sheepfold and the character of him as the good shepherd. He's teaching and preaching, and look at what it says in verse 6. It says, This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. He goes on to continue preaching, and then later on it says in verse 19, Again, there was a division among the Jews because of these words. Some accused him of having a demon. Some said he's insane. And they said, Why listen to him? And yet others said, These are the words. Are these not the words of one who is oppressed by a demon? And he says, can a demon open the eyes of the blind? As the truth is communicated, he's loving them with the truth, and there's this parting, there's this division. Some couldn't hang with the difficult truths of what he's explaining. Look over at verse 31. It says the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. The truth is not bringing about kumbaya. It's bringing about division. It's bringing about people with rocks picking them up. In verse 39, and they sought. To arrest him, he loved them with the truth, the exposed truth, and it made for a radical division. That's not gymnastics I'm doing right there. That's just reading things in context. It's engaging things in context, and we're seeing that this Christ, when he communicated, when he preached, and when he loved with the truth, there was this parting, there was this division. And some are saying, Yes, I'm worshiping, and some are saying, Where's my rock? And some are holding the keys to the jail cell. We're going to lock this lunatic up. There were others that he loved with the truth. The Samaritan woman, the blind man. He loved the disciples even, in some ways, loved them with rebukes. In just the previous chapter that we engaged on worship, where Mary is is anointing the feet of Jesus with this expensive year's worth of nard, Judas led this little Conversation among the disciples where they're going, What a waste of money, man. We could spend all this money on, we could sell this nard and then go take care of the poor. And Jesus says, Leave her alone. You're seeing worship at its best. Wherever the gospel is proclaimed from here on, her story will be told. Leave her alone. Most of you know Peter's engagement with Jesus when he's trying to talk him out of the cross. And what does Jesus say to Peter? He says, Get behind me, Satan. You're thinking like the world, you're not thinking like the things of God. This love of Jesus, this love didn't entertain or dance for man. This love didn't entertain or dance for the disciples. This love spoke the truth even when it wasn't popular. This love, love them with difficult and hard to understand truths that may even be beyond them for the moment. That sound familiar, cross point? Love them with difficult truths that may hit you and just do complete violence to you at first. That's confounding me. Great, be confounded and then meditate on it and gnaw on it and let God show you something that's new and rich and take you on the journey through the word that we're supposed to be on. He loved them with difficult, hard-to-understand truths. He loved them with a rebuke when it was warranted. I told you what I wanted to do this morning was to cast out the world's view of love and then God's view of this commanded love in John chapter 13. I want to deal just for a moment with the world's view of love. In high school, we had this trick that we wanted so desperately to play on each other. We never really achieved it, although we really wanted to. Playing football, you know, a lot of times you're wearing sweats. Sweats don't have a belt, you know, they just have that string that nobody ever really ties tight, you know. And the trick that we always want to play on each other is in front of the pep squad or in front of family or friends is try and pull each other's sweats down, you know. You stand there in your tighty and You got me. That was the trick that we so wanted to play on each other. I don't know that we ever achieved it. Me and Buzzy Crenshaw, my best friend, always tried, but we never really landed it. But what I want to do in these next few moments is I want to pull down the shorts on tolerance. I want tolerance to be standing there in tidy whities in front of God's people. The world's definition of love, I want to be standing there with shorts around our ankles. What we're dealing with in this world is that this world defines love as tolerance. Tolerance used to mean when I was a kid, I think. I think this is what it meant. It used to mean that crusty-nosed kid on the playground that had matted hair and stinky t shirt you know, stains, that we were to bear with that guy. That we were to not shun him or run from him, but that we were supposed to be tolerant of him. And really, it's a picture of kind of being long-suffering and patient. But now the world's view of tolerance is very different from that. That's the old tolerance. The new tolerance is, doesn't have anything to do with crusty noses. The world's view of tolerance is that every idea and every thought has equal footing. That every thought and every idea is equally valid. And that if anybody tries to introduce something that we say is absolute, then that person is being intolerant. And the self-professed tolerant can no longer be tolerant of the intolerant, so thereby making themselves intolerant. (laughs) Isn't that funny? So then they're intolerable of themselves. But man, what I'm thinking about when this world's view of love is tolerance, is what I'm seeing is that... Basically what happens is when the Christian steps into that view and we say, no, there is an anchor, there is a truth that's timeless, there is something that is written in stone that will not change, and we try and grab hold of that or we try and speak that or communicate that, that we can be viewed as intolerant. I'll give an example of the definition of family, or really to be more specific, the definition of marriage. That's in the news a lot lately. And the world kind of has a disintegrating view of what marriage is defined as. For the Christian, the, 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 what should be the definition of marriage should be fueled from Ephesians chapter three, 5 for 31 and Genesis chapter 2 that a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. He should hold fast to his wife and that the two, man and woman, shall become one flesh. That should be the church's clear communication because that's absolute truth that's immovable oftentimes when that is communicated we're viewed as intolerant because the tolerance say that definition of marriage can be just two people that love each other and my argument is at what point you know if it's if it's man and man or woman and man at what point does it become man and daughter or what point does it become man and two best friends Or what point does it become man and pet? There is a line for a Christian. And it is absolute. And even the most supposed tolerant, they too will say there is a line. Because most of the even professed tolerant will say, (laughs) the thought of a man being okay with, or being allowed to marry his daughter is intolerable. So the question is, where do we draw the line? The question is, what truth do we hold on to? And for the Christian, we're holding on to this timeless truth. And the reality is, it will create division. The reality is, it will create a response, much of what, much like we saw with Christ. I want to consider those things for the next few minutes. I want us to consider that we are charged with loving just as Jesus loved, that Jesus loved with the truth. So here are three things that we should know and understand about this command to love just as he did. First is that we are to love not with tolerance, as the world defined love, but with truth, just as Jesus did. We've got to believe as Christians that truth is static, that truth is immovable, that we can grab and hold on to something that does not move and that does not flow with changing opinions and changing tides and changing mindsets and preferences. Our Christ's truth was not relative in these passages that we've looked at. It was pretty static. His truth was not relative and it wasn't dependent on needs or preferences of his followers. He didn't take requests about who to be or about what to say. By today's standards, he would have been viewed as pretty intolerant. The reality is, if you look at all the people that are grabbing stones... By his day's standards, he was viewed as pretty intolerant. But remember, he loved with the truth. Some of the things that I think have tempered our, in some ways, the Christian kind of norm mindset is that, man, we cannot confront. We cannot cast out this picture of absolute truth because it might hurt somebody's feelings And I think in many ways we've been conditioned by passages like 1 Corinthians 13, the love passage, which we should be conditioned by that passage, but rightly understood. One of those ingredients in love in that passage is that love bears all things. And as you're sitting here and we're talking about tolerance, you might think that that's the same thing and that's not the same thing. Being tolerant and bearing all things are not the same thing. The way that's actually translated better is that love never tires of support. That word forbears all things is, is the word that comes, is where we get the word roof from. So it's like a picture that true love as exposed in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is it like love is a column in a house that's supporting the loved. But it doesn't mean that we're tolerant. It doesn't mean that every idea and every thought has equal footing. It doesn't mean that every idea and every thought is equally valid. So we're to love not with tolerance, but with truth. Secondly, we need to know that not everyone will love being loved with the truth. We've got to know that. We've got to expect, we've got to be educated by this photo album that we've just looked through where a lot of people are holding rocks. If Jesus loved them with the truth, not everybody loved to be loved. Sometimes I think the world's mindset is that if we consider something as well-spoken and properly exposed, then it will be embraced by more. We put a lot of emphasis on the preacher, how he communicates, his method and his form, or maybe how we do our bulletins, or how we do our slides. And if we get all this stuff just right, then we'll really reach darkness. And it's a lot of emphasis on method, but we've got to appreciate is that The truth will not be embraced by more based on method. The reality is, despite our worldly mindset, is the reality is that volumes of people responding may not be a validator of truth, but in fact may be evidence of untruth. Does that mean that all large churches are not faithful? No, not for a moment. But I will say this, it does mean that some large churches are potentially unfaithful. I don't have to name names. It's not my place to really do, do that this morning. I've done that before on occasions where I've really felt the Lord's leadership. But that's not what we're about this morning. I just want you to understand that just because you see a lot of people following something does not mean that it's true. If we're to be educated by the pho- photo album that we've just looked through, where we see droves of people leaving this truth message, we've got to appreciate and understand that not everyone will love the truth Many people will reject your insights, your exposure, your truth words. That's a guarantee. Many people will dismiss you, but some will hear it as the truth. The truth is not validated by mass response. I want to show you a passage in Luke, Luke chapter 12. I shared with you one of the things that I was really nervous about this morning is uh, broken paradigms. I I don't enjoy fracturing paradigms or destroying paradigms. I don't really enjoy that. I enjoy truth, but I don't enjoy people being kind of disassembled. I know it's a necessary part. It's probably almost like the kind of feeling that a parent has when we have to discipline our child. We know that our child needs it, and that's not what this. I'm just not a spanking this morning. It's just exposing the truth, realizing that some of you will be disassembled by this because we have paradigms and the kind of the sweet Michael Bolton image of Jesus is that's that's prevalent. I'll show you a passage in Luke chapter 12, verse 49. These are words from Christ. Jesus says, I came to cast fire on the earth. Based on what we've seen in the photo album so far, I think that fire is truth. <laughs> where when he speaks and he preaches and people are picking up rocks to stone him, he says, I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it's accomplished. That's he speaking of the cross. He says, Do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? Do you think I've come to look like Michael Bolton and bring worldwide kumbaya? says, no, I tell you, but I've come rather for division. For from now on in one house there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided, father against son and son against father, mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. The dividing agent here is not somebody being a horse's behind. It's not somebody being difficult and hard to live with. The dividing agent and instrument here is the fire that's cast, and that is the truth. The truth of the gospel will not be embraced by all. Absolute truth about what defines family or marriage or what defines... uh, Just consider some of the things that Jesus taught on divorce. What you've got to appreciate in his context, divorce was very common. It may have been more common then than it is now. And he presented such a high standard of marriage that the disciples responded with, man, we shouldn't even get married. The truth divides. It's hard. It's challenging. Some of the things that we've been dealing with lately as a church, the elders, we've been meeting with the youth parents, youth dads specifically. Some of the things that the youth dads have shared with us is that there's kind of a a tendency among some of their youth that you can just see that they're poised to walk away from the faith the minute they get out of the house. Like, I can't wait to blow this thing. I'm out of here. And youth dads are troubled over it, laboring over it. And what I think this should show us, as houses are divided against one another is that if your youth are walking away from your house and walking away from the ministry and walking away from the church, it may not be an indictment against you. And it may not be an indictment against your church. It may be just a factor of the truth being exposed. Do we want that to happen? Absolutely not. I'm hoping and praying, and this is what the elders are hoping and praying, is that it's a little season of rebellion, that he who began a good work will be faithful to complete it, that he'll bring those youth back. But some youth leaving the faith and leaving as they leave the home may be a picture of what's taking place right here, that not everybody's going to love the truth. The truth will divide. If people walked away from Christ, the truth speaking, truth loving, loving with the truth Christ in droves, what makes you or what makes me think that I can do a better job of speaking the truth than Jesus? He was the alpha preacher and the alpha teacher. I can't get my preaching method just right to where this will, will reach Greenville. Greenville's not about my tr- preaching method. It's about God doing a work. And when he does the work, he'll do it in spite of the likes of me. What makes us think we can do a better job of speaking the truth than Jesus did? Or what makes us think that we can repackage the truth to make it more palatable? That's the way we think. We get our method just right. We get our bulletins just right. We're going to reach darkness. What we've got to know is that not everyone will want to be loved with the truth, whatever the method whatever the style of presentation. The third and last thing is that we have to open our mouths to communicate the truth. I shouldn't have said last because I don't want y'all to start thinking about lunch. This is important. We have to open our mouths to communicate the truth. The truth is the truth whether we communicate it or not. It's still the truth. I'm thankful that it's that Anchor. And it's there whether I communicate it or not. It's static. There is such thing as absolute truth. But in order for others to hear it, we've got to communicate it. It's got to come out of our mouths. How will they hear unless there is a communicator? And Jesus came, thankfully. He didn't come and just do some miracles. He didn't come and just live and walk and eat make some furniture, but he spoke. He spoke truth into these guys' lives. He loved them with the spoken truth. These last few months, really since the beginning of the year, we've targeted fathers and functional um, shepherds being single moms. We've targeted you as being the hope of your family, the future of your family, as being the instrument of engaging your family with the truth. So, fathers, I'm going to say something to you right now and functional shepherds. If I were to ask you if you loved your family, I bet you would say, of course I do. Do you love them with a paycheck? Do you love them with some ball tossing in the yard a couple days a week? Do you love them with some recreation where you load up the van and you go for a trip together? where you're the guy that drives? those are all good things man i'm hopeful you do all those things do you love them with a the tickle fight every now and again man those are cool kids in here are smiling because they know man i love them. my dad does that but let me tell you something that's not the love that's commanded here in John chapter 13 the love that's commanded here in john chapter 13 speaks and it speaks truth So, fathers, if you say you love your families, yet you have no word of truth for your family, I would argue that you don't, John chapter 13, love. If love speaks, and yet you're silent and mute on the things of God, then you are doing your family an injustice, and you are being unfaithful. And you might have the thought, man, I'm going to leave that to the pros. I got them in the car, (laughs) and they're here this morning listening to this joker. You may feel like you're being faithful fathers or functional shepherds in just being here and hearing the word exposed from me or from your teachers. You may be fearful deep down that you don't know enough to actually speak truth into the lives of your kids. But here's a little clue for you. All you have to do is be a week ahead of them. You think you can be a week ahead of your six-year-old? I bet you can. If you can read. If you've got a phone or a computer... And you're reading ahead and you've got this mindset that, okay, on Sunday morning I was equipped for something and now I'm actually going to go do it and I'm going to speak truth. I'm going to love with the truth my family. And I come to a place where I'm stumped and I'm picking up the phone to call one of the elders or one of my teachers or I'm sending them an email. Hey, I'm going to love my family with this truth next week. Can you help me sort through it? All you have to do is be a week ahead. Don't leave it to the pros, men. It's your charge. It's your privilege to love your families with the truth. You've got to recognize that right now you're being equipped for that. If all this is is getting your weekly church on, then you're missing the reality of what we're doing here. Well, the teacher and the preacher is equipping you for something. And the equipping you is not to equip you just to show up next Sunday. You're being equipped to engage your families. You're being equipped to engage your workmates. You're being equipped to engage your neighbors with this truth. If all this is is getting your church on, then you're a terminal disciple, and the church ends with you. Thankfully, the Lord can work in spite of you. (laughs) But I want you to see what that means. If the truth goes no further than what you're hearing right now, and you don't see yourself as being groomed and equipped to engage your family, then you're missing the fact that you're being equipped. You're being equipped to love your family with the truth. If this message ends with you, then it's a timeless, life-giving message given to a terminal disciple. My closing prayer. I'm gonna have kind of a little conclusion after our time of worship and song. I want to deal just for a moment after our worship and song with how we communicate this truth. Let me pray. Lord, I'm so um, so concerned over this message that. Um, Things are so easily misunderstood. I beg the Holy Spirit to come alongside and to expose and to teach and to comfort and to guide. Lord, I pray that the people of God will be a people of the truth. I pray that this church will be characterized as um, gripping the absolute and lovingly and gently communicating that to a lost world. Lord, I pray as a result of that that we will be the preservatives, the salty, bright, aromatic people that you call us to be. Lord, we're thankful for these images and these pictures that we've seen of how the world responded to Christ. We pray that we'll find encouragement to press on and following through with this commandment to love and that we'll love with truth. We worship you now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. This uh, sermon's like this. Uh, I want to save this to the end because I know if it's at the tail end of a sermon you might be tired and you may not get it. Uh, but I want to save it for right now. Sometimes sermons like this, people can see his license to really be a horse's bind. You know, man in the office okay, I'm the only Christian here at the office, and I'm just really going to make life miserable for everybody else, and I'm just going to be as mean. I'm going to clobber people with the truth. There can be an excuse to do that, and that is a misunderstanding of the whole character of this thing. I think it's a misrepresentation of how Christ must have lived and moved. I just don't see him walking around with a grimace on his face and talking like a pirate and yelling at people, barking at her. I see a gentleness with the truth. We can't see his face, but you can hear the tone of it. The most aggressive and violent thing we see is him clearing the temple. But even then, I bet he was pretty calm as he's turning over these tables. I'll give you a couple of passages just to think about as we are encouraged to speak the truth. In Ephesians chapter 4, it says, Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head and Christ. Later on it says, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So that the character of our communication with each other should should be spoken in love. That we are to speak the truth in love. It's to be characterized by love. Here's another passage. We are to be, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you. You're in a conversation about how to define family or excuse me, how to define marriage because the definition of family is changing, but the definition of marriage is pretty static. That's pretty, man, that is, that's an anchor. And you're in the workplace or you're in school and the kids are talking or your cubicle mates are talking. We're to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us For a reason for the hope that's in you. And it says yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. So that when you are slandered. Not if you are slandered. When you speak the truth in love. You will be slandered. If they crucified Jesus. If they picked up stones to stone him. If they left in droves. And if we know that the way that leads to life is narrow." How could you expect anything different? But if we speak the truth in love, we are to do it with gentleness and respect. So when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. By your gentleness. By your respect. By your love. This is an important message for me. Because if you've been around here a few years, you know that, man, there are times where I don't communicate this way. I'm surprised that there are still people at Crosspoint sometimes. I really am. Some of you that have been here for a while, you know what I'm talking about. There's times where I've really barked at at the people of God. And I'm growing in this. I haven't arrived. None of you have arrived either. We are to be a truth-speaking people, knowing, anticipating that not everyone will embrace it. We are to speak the truth in love. And we are to be prepared to give an account for the hope within with gentleness and respect. That's who we are. Y'all stand and I'll dismiss you. Lord, we thank you so much for this picture of Christ loving us with the truth. Lord, I pray that you will just teach us to love each other with the truth, that we will have songs and psalms and spiritual songs on our hearts with each other that we will have sweet testimonies of what you're doing in our lives as we talk with one another or we pray as we're talking with our workmates our our neighbors our family members are as fathers and and mothers are talking with their families with kids or we just pray that we will love these people with the truth and that it'll be characterized by gentleness and respect, and a truth spoken in love. Lord, we pray that you'll be glorified in that. Pray that you will be savored and enjoyed. Pray that some will smell that as a sweet aroma and they'll be drawn to you. Lord, we thank you so much for this picture of Christ and his ministry. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks, y'all.